So welcome to another episode of The Shredder Show. Today, an absolute pleasure today to have Kasim Hansen on the podcast. So Kasim is a world-leading expert when it comes to all things muscle building and nutrition, and he has a very specific, tailored approach looking at the individual rather than, as he said before, putting people in a specific box. So um, interestingly enough, before we came on the podcast, Kasim, I spoke with a friend of mine, uh, Frank Den Blanken, another Dutch trainer who was uh, who said he trained with you once, which he said was a a very eye-opening experience, so you become very highly regarded. So uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. Awesome, man. Frank's a good dude, too. Yeah. So we, uh, we, we've connected a couple times, both in the U.S. and, uh, and in Holland. Yeah. He, was, uh, he, was, he was telling me he still has nightmares about a pendulum squat with bands, so uh, <laughs> I'd call him out on that. So um, to give a bit of a brief background on yourself, obviously you've got um, a huge amount of experience dealing with like Olympic um, medalists, Olympia champions, and like also some of the more like average Joe sort of clients. And your um, the way you deal with everyone as a case by case basis, I think, is very unique because now everyone tends to follow the same sort of training systems. It's very much like a monkey see, monkey do approach. Is that something you see very rife amongst the industry and people on social media more so now as well? Well, I think anytime an industry grows, what you ha- what you see is there's, we'll say, a more systemized approach needed at at, at the lower level. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I try and I try and at least provide the context of yeah, we see a lot more people that are kind of doing like cookie cutter out of the box type things. Um, but obviously, as this volume of demand goes up, coaches are early in their career; they need some sort of like rules or, or, or guidelines. Um, I think there's the problem is there's some complacency of just either staying there advertising that it's individualized rather than it is what it is. And I think in this industry, you know, you get what you pay for. Uh, if somebody says that they, they're training 200 clients, it, it doesn't take much to do the math to realize that like, okay, how, how much effort do you really think is going into individualizing your program if this person is training 200 people simultaneously versus 50 versus another person like, you know, who knows? I've seen some pretty big numbers of people that advertise, like the number of people they're working with. And at a certain point, you have to wonder, it's like, well, when that number gets high enough, are you actually working with people or are you working with an automated system yeah, uh, at that point in time? It's one of those things. It's, it's a human touch. I think, is that one of the things you very much look into with clients when they first come to you or one of your team in terms of like the individual, not just physiologically, but almost like psychologically, what would maybe suit them best depending on their, their lifestyle, maybe habits? Yeah, it's that's a huge part of it because I mean we could draw up the most physiological like perfect thing on paper, um, but that only works if a person's able to carry it out. So it's kind of got to be that marriage of what complexity a person is willing to commit to now, um, and then how how can I get the best physiological outcome out of that complexity or you know that level of. Uh, programming that fits that person's lifestyle and that goes from nutrition to training or whatever and what i tend to see is that as as a person gets educated themselves on their fitness career they get more routine and you know more things become unconscious as they become ready for more complexity and set in fact some of them get attracted to to more of that you know as as they go through but as a person first comes in you know you may be overhauling their life and it may be overwhelming and the, the odds that you're actually getting the physiological outcome, both from an accuracy standpoint and just from the amount of sheer stress that you're throwing on someone, it may be like, man, we could have gotten, we could have gotten better results by just simply making this, uh, you know, a lower barrier of entry, lower hanging fruit, uh, so to speak. So that's why we take, we take both things into account. And um, I, I can't remember who originally said this, um, but it's, it's not an original quote to me, but there's like, okay, you can speak client, but think trainer, meaning that you can be doing things on the physiological side that you know are very important, but you know, the client or the athlete doesn't necessarily need to know any more details other than what they need to know from a su- success standpoint, especially at the beginning. And then you can start educating them more on the whys as you get into more nuances later. But at the beginning, it's like, okay, how can I kind of, you know, pull the strings behind the curtain on the physiology side of standpoint, but make it as least overwhelming as possible on what they need to do in terms of the plan that's in front of them. So almost trying to like lay out the, the groundwork as simple as possible without trying to make it too complicated. I think that's, I don't know, that's something you see sometimes in the fitness industry. Everyone loves to have like a jazzy gimmick of 
I don't know, whatever, FST7 or whatever you want to call it. Any, like anyone has, like, put a label on something and sometimes try and make things overly complicated when they don't need to be so. Is that something you've seen a bit of? Yeah, I mean, from a marketing perspective, complexity, there's a, there's a certain like a complexity sells type thing, right? Like there's this inherent idea that if something is more complex, it must somehow be superior. Um, uh, and there's so many aspects of human beings where that's just, that's just not the case, especially when it comes to, you know, real life. And I think there's a, a big part of that is the disconnect in the industry, of the the trainers, the coaches that basically have a fitness twenty four seven lifestyle. You know, they work in a gym or you know whatever it may that that is their lifestyle. And there's a disconnect between them and the person that has the the nine to five job and the family or whatever. Where fitness is this thing that they're using to improve their life, but it isn't their life. Um, and so you have a lot of the coaches and trainers, I think, that are they're marketing more and creating more stuff that would appeal to other coaches rather than to the, you know, the people that you know, sh- they, they should be attracting, right. The clients that they could actually benefit and help. 100%. From a, um, a training side of things, where would you look to start with most clients when they come to you then? Do you have a, a set sort of like priming phase you use where using a fancy word um, where like you might look to maybe do more so like full body workouts, like upper lower splits, things like that when people come to you or do you have, any sort of preference in terms of approach with training? This is where it's, it's gets harder and harder to summarize what we do because that's uh, like, those are the rules that we're trying to break is that like, okay, when somebody comes to us, do you have a standard thing? And the answer is no. But what I can say is in terms of like patterns and whatnot, um, you know, there's definitely things for if somebody's a beginner or they're coming in from doing nothing that, you know, okay, there's some kind of standard approaches where we're going to focus on frequency. They're going to do a high amount of body parts per session. They're not going to do a bro split. They're going to do a a total body or half body thing or whatever. And we're going to, we're going to, you know, kind of chip a lot of those boxes. But then when you get people that come in that have been training, um, that's where there's a ton of divergence because a lot of it's going to depend on what have they been doing. So the one thing that's usually consistent is whatever they're going to do is usually very different than what they've been doing. And usually, uh, I would say most people that come to us that have been training for a while, we put them on a program that they wouldn't otherwise think fits their goal because it's probably that's the thing they need because they've kind of created this like physiological bottleneck by neglecting this. So if you're, you're been pursuing hypertrophy or if you've been pursuing fat loss, you've probably been doing a similar style of training for months, years, who knows how long. Um, and you've been eating that way and your all of your habits have been that way. And you've probably neglected a lot of the things that could be helping your recovery, your performance, maybe, um, you know, things that are just kind of now the limiting factor that, you know, you maybe could have gotten by with neglecting for six months, but not for a year or not for two years or, or whatever it may be. Um, so that's probably the the big thing that people notice when they start with us coming from an existing program is, is that, Hey, if you've been doing a lot of one style of training that we're, we're not going to get you another or just a bigger dose of the thing that hasn't been working. Yeah. I think it's one of those things people, do you ever get a much pushback from that from people who are like, well, I like doing chest on Mondays or I like doing the bro split. This is what works for me. Do you get much of a pushback from that from some people sometimes? <laughs> The only the only pushback we usually get because I mean we're, we kind of we kind of have allocated ourselves in a certain niche of the industry right whereas like people we don't tend to get people that just blindly like oh I'm going to get a coach who all these N one guys because um, by nature like usually people have you know they they've they've gone through levels by the time they get to us but the one place we do get pushback is when we have to try and get people to either back off or do a little bit less because they've been so ingrained in that, like, okay, I need to either push harder or whatever. So it may be like, Hey, you need to start eating carbs. So you need to cut your cardio or you need to cut your, you know, your, the amount of training, you, you, some sort of a, a deload in, in some sort of fashion. Um, that's usually where we, where we get the kickback. And sometimes that can be on like the chemical side of it too. Yeah. Right. It's getting people to like, Hey, we like, part of the issues or, or at least our ability to assess what's going on, we need to decrease the variables, right? Like you're like, if you, if your blood work looks like a chemistry set, then it's going to be hard for us to say, this is the problem and this is working good. And this is working bad. Cause just everything is interacting with other things. 
And with your um, approach with that with the individuals, like, do you see that when they start to take back, like the load, like deloading slightly with a lot of people, and maybe slightly less volume, but more of an accurate approach, they actually tend to take like much more of a step forward. And do you have certain signs you look at with an individual when they come to you in terms of, okay, maybe this individual is quite overtrained, like they're, I don't know, hey, their HRVs all over the shop, they've got maybe any high blood pressure issues, any signs of fatigue or nervous system problems? Yeah, and I think that's that's how we get the buy-in when we get people to, you know, either take a step back or take a different approach is we try and give them these are the things that we will expect to see if this is working. So a lot of times that'll be improvement in sleep, maybe a drop in some blow, improvement in energy, HRV, all sorts of things that we can look at. Um, so it'll depend on what they're taking a break, you know, from or deloading from and, or what we're trying to focus on. Um, but I think that's one of the nice things about taking an individual based approach is that when you're, the more specific you are, the more specific like things that you can look at or in terms of expectations, I expect these things to change if this is working because I'm doing things in a very specific manner. Um, and that really gets people's buy-in versus saying like, Oh, we're going to do this and maybe some good things will happen and maybe some other things won't. And then trying to sort out what's causative the more specific you can be to the individual and the more specific you can be with your nutrition and your program design, the more you can say like, I know that like what I'm doing is working for this individual. If this, this, and this happens, and those are the things that I expect to happen, but you don't necessarily expect that every change is going to improve every metric. Like, so for instance, if I have somebody that's been coming in um, and they've been doing like, uh, we'll say like a bunch of like a uh, very metabolic based training. They've been supersets and tri-sets and giant sets and, you know, very like dense training or whatever. And all of a sudden we slow that down to a more strength type thing. Like we're going to look at like, okay, we're going to look at their body's going to adapt a different way than if that was inverse, right? You have like somebody that's doing powerlifting training and paying like no dues to the metabolic system or the conditioning system or whatnot. And you get, you get both up, you get both of those spectrums, right. Um, you know, as well as a host of things, uh, you know, in between. Um, so like knowing where somebody's coming in is a huge part of that. And then being able to make specific adjustments because like, okay, if your sleep is like this, if it's disrupted in the middle of the night or you have a hard time falling asleep, or, you know, if this is how you tend to respond after a refeed meal, once we make these changes, these would be the signs that it will work. And when that happens, then a client's like, Oh shit, these guys are like magicians. And it's like, Oh no, it's just, it's just the science is a lot easier when we were specific with it. But when you're very general, it gets very dirty and very, very hard to interpret. 100%. In regards to a couple of points you, you brought up there in terms of training, like if you have individuals come to say with like a, a weaker body part, for example, do you have a specific where you'd work with them. So for example, you said that people have uh, come with maybe like a metabolic approach, maybe doing like higher volume, a lot of supersets and giant sets versus strength training. Would you try and get people to do a combination of the two or try and push into the opposite phase completely? How, how would you work with that if someone comes to you who's been doing predominantly strength work or predominantly metabolic work? So with weak body parts, well, the, the first thing that we usually do is we look at like are they actually trained or are they actually able to train that body part efficiently? Like what's the execution look like? Um, and, and then, it, and then from there, it's usually a better exercise selection standpoint, right? Cause it's like, it doesn't matter how many sets or supersets or whatever you throw at something. If you're not actually able to make that tissue uh, be the thing that's doing the work from there, then the approach, especially if there's a, a learning curve from like they need to improve their technical skill or we've introduced exercise or exercise variants that are new to them. We're going to take a relatively lower volume, higher frequency approach so that we can improve that skill acquisition faster, right? Oftentimes if somebody has got a lagging body part, it means they're probably either the combination of their technique or exercise selection um, are just not that they just haven't been hitting that. So it, it's kind of like, if you look at that, you have to look at it as like almost as like, this is more of a beginner body part. You would kind of train it like that. So if you, you had a beginner, you wouldn't be like, okay, cool. We're going to do, you know, 24 sets of legs today because you got small legs. It's like, no, it's probably, probably like four sets of legs three times a week is a better, better starting point for that individual, right? Like our, our goal is not to go from like, you know, walking bipedal movement to, you know, wheelchair. Our goal is to get them better um, at doing those lifts and 
and build up a little bit of capacity for performance and recovery. So then they can handle, you know, volume or, or more difficult exercises down the road. So same thing for a weak body part. It's like, okay, what, what can we do to bring up the proficiency of those contractions? And if we really haven't been hitting that tissue before, it shouldn't take much volume, especially volume per session to stimulate that tissue. If we start doing it correctly. Do you have a certain exercises? Say for example, if you're trying to improve, um, certain body parts say like a lot of guys struggle shoulders as an example would you try and focus on more um, exercises which have like a better strength curve like a consistent tension so using like more cable exercises for example versus like say using dumbbell lateral raises for example versus cable um not necessarily. I mean, usually where people are, are not missing, uh, it's not that they're missing one particular resistance profile or, or if that's like that alone probably isn't enough to give somebody like a, a really poor body part. Usually it is the path of motion with which they're taking. So it's like, okay, they're lifting the dumbbells, like say they're doing a lateral raise, but they're lifting the lateral raise in a way that kind of shares the load across the delts throughout the range of motion rather than targeting the medial delt throughout the entire range of motion. So rather than worrying about uh, the resistance profile right off the bat, which it's easy for us on the back end to just say, okay, we're just going to program exercises for these resistance profiles. For, that's one of those coaches versus client things. But usually the biggest improvement on the client side of things is actually saying, okay, if we look at them, how do we teach them to do a dumbbell lateral raise that is medial delt tension the whole way? It's not like, okay, it goes from medial delt and then they, maybe they externally rotate or they, you know, they extend their thoracic spine or something. And all of a sudden it's anterior delt for half of the motion. It's like, well, okay, it doesn't matter what the resistance profile is. If the muscle that we're using is only doing half of each, each rep. Um, so usually it's about like correcting those arm paths. Then from there, once we have that, then we can give people exercises that cover a greater degree of a muscle's like overall length. And then, and then the resistance profiles then start to becoming a factor, but usually it's actually just getting them to do the motion that keeps that muscle under tension the majority of the time. So from there, yeah, it's just a natural progression for us. If we have somebody doing three exercises for delts over the course of a week or a workout or whatever it may be, depending on the split that we're going to throw in both different muscle lengths and different resistance profiles. But the, you know, but the predecessor to that is that we have to actually make that the technique and those motions isolated to the tissue we're trying to grow. 100%. And obviously the methodology you teach is obviously to a higher standard than 99% of trainers out there. And I know someone who's a big inspiration to you. I think you learned a lot from was Charles Poliquin. Is that someone you uh, sought a lot of information from and guidance over the years you learned from? Is there anyone else that's helped you along your career in terms of development or any advice for anyone out there in terms of learning? Because I think that's the big mistake I see trainers and trainees making is that particularly like younger guys have that egotistical, like, oh, I know what I'm doing. Um, mm -hmm. They don't necessarily open up and ask for help, which I think is short-sighted. And I think we've all been there and you, you realize later on that no one knows everything. And then soon as anyone thinks they know everything, they know, know nothing. Um, is, is there anyone who's helped you a lot along the way? I've had a ton of mentors in, in, a, in a variety of factors. And I think, you know, Charles Polkman was one, uh, especially on like the training side of things. Like people ask me a lot of times, like uh, some of the more like very nuanced specific stuff, like, oh, he did this thing like Charles. And really the best thing I got from Charles was the foundational like Polkman principles, like that those those base principles are the things that probably relate more so to what I do now. And most of the, we'll say like fringe or nuance stuff that Charles is used to do. Like I have, I've gone in a vastly different direction than that. I've evolved um, from there, which I think is one of the ways that you actually pay homage to a mentor is you don't just like take what they do and then, you know, just copy it, but you actually learn from it, master it, improve upon it. Um, you know, kind of hone it to, you know, your niche and, and, and your style, et cetera. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I got a lot of functional medicine stuff through like Bob Rakowski. Um, I think if, if you're a young trainer and obviously like my education journey started years ago. So the people that I learned from, obviously Charles, you know, rest in peace is not, you know, it's not an option to go and take a course from him anymore, but um, there's a lot more people out there giving information. And I think if you're a, if you're a young person and you're getting into this industry, 
you want to try and absorb as much information as possible. Uh, but I think getting a good foundation will help you choose the right people because it kind of gives you a little bit of a like a, a bullshit meter on who's who's actually getting good information and who's not. And I think another important thing, and this is kind of where I transitioned through in my career, is is that you also want to make sure that you take time to try and at least learn or observe people that you don't necessarily agree with. You have to get out of your, your echo chamber and you have to challenge your current ideas because what most coaches do is they go and they, they take courses of just people that are just reaffirming the things they're already doing. Right. You know, they, so it's like, okay, I'm just going to keep taking courses with these people or, or whatnot. And you may not know the flaws and what that system has. And basically almost every system out there has flaws or it has limitations or there's just things that it isn't covering. So once you get a foundation and you kind of get something, you know, that, that you like, a, you know, you have a system, maybe you have a few people that really gel with you start sprinkling in some adversary, you know, or, you know, some adverse ideas to what you do start actually looking to learn from people that are doing things in a way that challenges your way. And you'll either find new ideas that strength or that, that will improve what you're doing, or you will find out like, okay, what I'm doing actually, like you kind of validate it for yourself a little bit more, right? You, you increase the strength of your argument that you can then deliver, or you get better at describing it to somebody that may be coming from those opposing views into your system. Like somebody that may have had another coach that did this other thing. And then they come to you. It's, it's very important to be aware of all of the things that are out there because not only does it make you better at your skill set, but it also gives you the ability to communicate how what you do is different. So as an example of say yourself, when you've gone and tried something different that you didn't necessarily agree with, have you got any examples of that of interest? Um, so, all right. So one of the, one, I mean, there's so many, I, and I, and I will say that like, you know, like even, even Charles is a great example of like, you know, I learned a lot from the mistakes or the things that weren't quite whole truths um, in Charles's program, but probably a really good one that, uh, we're working on recently, um, you know, is, is I went into a, a, a system where they're really focused on the resistance profiles and torque and whatnot, um, you know, and kind of the message was, is that you needed to have this like perfect resistance profile, like to train a muscle, like it had to be in, and that always seemed counterintuitive to me coming from a biochemistry background and knowing some of kind of like the internal mechanics of the way the muscle works, both on the chemical side and the, and the structure side. And so while all of the information was very valuable in terms of understanding resistance profiles and how exercises, you know, uh, provide resistance, the whole idea of like, well, okay, you only train a muscle with a mat, like a, what a resistance profile that matches the strength profile. So something that's like challenging the whole way. And now, basically all of the research that we're doing and is what is uncovering that. Yeah, there's definitely a, a different physiological response to using different resistance profiles. So exercise selection can be much more fine tuned to a goal when you look at the whole picture. But if you just look at the physics of a joint and a muscle and you look at it kind of in robotic fashion, you could come up with that logic of like, Oh, I'm only going to do exercises in this specific way. And then you can all of a sudden actually get significantly less results. And you spend a lot more time getting those worse results because you like become so hyper-focused on this one little facet of like, okay, all of my resistance profiles need to be like this specific way. And all of a sudden it's like, well, okay, now I'm only doing like 12 exercises. Um, and each one of them takes like half an hour to set up. It's basically looks like a BDSM thing in the uh, multi-cable machine. Um, and it's like, that's, that's not, that's not good training for you. It's not good training for your clients. Um, understanding, understanding how to use all of the tools at the right time for the right person. That's, that's the, you know, that's that individualized approach rather than saying, okay, these are good exercises or these are good resistance profiles and these are bad ones. It's like, no, these are useful for this. These are useful for, for that. Right. Because there will come a time and a place where somebody needs a specific thing. It's one of those things I think the answer to the nearly, 90% of questions from clients is normally it depends. Yeah. Right. Depends like the individual. So it's uh it's a very, very true point. That to be fair. Very true point. 
Um, in regards to from a nutrition aspect, is that something that you find again that is very much like people have a one trick approach where they'll give people very much the same sort of templates of diets and things like that, which causes issues. Because one of the big things I've, I personally see with clients is that they, certain foods agree with people better than others. And a lot of people are so unaware of necessarily like their body's own like biofeedback in terms of like how food will actually sit with them. And when you actually make them aware of like, you shouldn't be feeling bloated or gassy all the time, that, that isn't right. And um, so many people are so oblivious to that sort of feedback from their own body and just follow the, the sheep as everyone else that does. Uh, is that something you see very frequently? And how do you deal with that when clients come to you and sort of go down that path with them? You think nutrition definitely is more dog- dogmatic than training. People tend to be more open-minded to different training styles, but when yeah. it comes to nutrition, it almost becomes uh, uh, religious, whether that be like, you know, a diet with a name or it's just like, no, it's just, seco it's just calories in calories out that's you know nothing else matters other than that um and the reality is is that there's a partial truth to 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 all of those things right and so that's kind of what we try and educate people on when they come in is is that okay like all of these things work you know for a reason and they also don't work in some people you know for a reason um and one of the things we really try to focus uh, on with people is is that we're using, we're using nutrition to fuel performance and recovery. And when we can kind of relate that to what we're trying to accomplish in the training session, then it tends to get them to open their mind to be flexible about what they're doing with their nutrition. Because <clears throat> they can all see how it's important for the tra- training stimulus. Because if we can say, hey, you know, you could eat that way if, you know, like if you wanted, it may work or may not. But if we're going to train this way now that's not suboptimal because of X, Y, or Z, right? Like if it's like, okay, if we're going to do a training system, that's very dependent on a lot of glycolytic mechanisms, probably a keto approach is not going to be a good idea for that. It's just, it's just, you're simply asking too much of your body. You're raising your stress burden, like to be able to survive that training protocol on that diet. And that's going to take away from, you know, your ability to deal with stress in your day-to-day life. It's going to have all these, you know, these issues. And so usually if we can get somebody on that and then we can show that like their performance improves and they eat a certain way, um, that, that, that clicks right away. And I think using, using that kind of argument of like, okay, if you eat this way, we expect this type of performance and this type of recovery that gives you the ability to assess the effectiveness of the diet outside of just the scale and the mirror. And you can get like a quicker, quicker validation of that. Um, the other thing that we tend to focus on in terms of people, if they come in with like their, say they have carb phobia or, or whatever, whatever it may be um, is, you know, we, we just, we just kind of work on the mechanisms of that uh, in terms of kind of explaining like, okay, that if you, if you did a low carb approach and you lost fat before kind of walking them through like, okay, here's where that succeeded, but also here's where that's like, not your, your, your only option. Um, and, you know, I would say this is one of the areas where if somebody comes in and they're very emotionally attached to a certain way of eating, um, that you may have to coax them a little bit more than push, meaning that you may have to say like, okay, if you want to eat that way, that's fine. But that means that these training options are off the table and we are going to have to do it this way. And then if somebody starts to kind of buy into just the service you're delivering them on training and they know that you're kind of holding back, they'll be like, okay, I'll be a little bit more flexible on the, on the nutrition so that I can do my hit training or, or whatever it is that like I want to do or take it to this next level. Cause you could be like, Hey, you know, whenever you're ready to get off of like, you know, the little kitty mode, like, let me know. And we're going to throw some carbs in your diet and step on the gas. Like, you know, that's, that could be a leverage tool, right? Like you can use training as a leverage tool. So when, when you're ready to come off the baby slope and skiing sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, you mentioned there, obviously, in terms of nutrition, how would you vary a client's nutrition for anyone listening who maybe is going through maybe more of a strength phase or doing more metabolic training? How do you look to optimize both? Could you refer to it briefly then? 
So, I mean, obviously we have to figure out like, well, what is the context? Cause you could say like, all right, we're doing strength training. We're doing metabolic training, but like, is this a person with a body composition goal, a hypertrophy goal or, or whatnot? And then that could be the long-term goal, but it may not be the, you know, the micro goal of what we're actually trying to uh, do this. Cause you may have somebody with a fat loss goal, but you're like, okay, we're taking a mesocycle to, you know, focus on a little bit of muscle gain or whatever. So that's going to, that's going to impact the, you know, the calorie surplus deficit, you know, whatever is, is, is going to be whatever that, whatever that um, body composition goal happens to be. But the next thing that we're really looking for, like after you get your minimums of like, okay, you're going to need at least this much protein, at least this much fat is, is like how much carbohydrates do we need performance and recovery versus what you can tolerate uh, from a, a digestive standpoint. Um, and that's kind of, that's kind of the big thing because I think getting somebody to have the appropriate degree of deficit surplus and then just a decent macro split that's matched with their training demand. If those two things are work synergist, working together synergistically, the amount of things that the body seems to be able to repair, recover from, improve are huge. But when those are mismatched, it can seem like, you know, a person's got all of the dis- dysfunctions like, oh, you know, you need eight grams of, you know, magnesium. If you're not having diarrhea every day, it's not enough. And you, you need, you know, all this curcumin for your inflammation and you need, you know, 10 gallons of fish oil and, uh, you, well, you need these things to sleep and you need these things to train. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. If we, if we actually just decreased the amount of, we'll say, unproductive stress we're putting on the body by giving it the appropriate fuel for the appropriate training. And it's something that the body can currently deal with. It's not a stress that's like they're already like tapped out on all of a sudden you'll see like, Hey, you know, your sleep is improving. Why? Well, because we're just nutritionally supporting your training and we're training in a way that your body can currently deal with. So it's like, okay, you don't need a bag of supplements, right? Or you don't need, you know, a one hour morning routine and a one hour evening routine just to be able to get through the day and get a good night's sleep, right? You can just, you can function uh, as a human being. You don't need to cut out 10% of your life to just focus on how to live. You can just be. I think that's uh, some excellent advice then. In terms of from a, say we could talk more of a fat loss perspective, which is what a lot of the audience are here. Do you have like certain protocols you tend to use for the clients? Do you look to try and get some progression fairly quickly at the start when someone comes to you to get to give them some confidence or how would you look to obviously it's very much as down to the individuals we've already discussed, but do you have like set methodologies in the way you think with things in terms of even like food choices versus like uh, trying to avoid like processed foods and things like that? Is there anything like in that respect? So, you know, if, if there is room um, for a client, to achieve what they need to from a calorie deficit and roughly what they need from the macros by just making simple choices, like just choose simply, you know, eat this, not that. That's a really good place to start because, you know, there's a quality aspect, there's a nutrient density aspect to that. Um, so, and, and, you know, there's, there, there's a very well-known guy in this industry that has this quote of like, Oh, clean eating is stupid. Cause when, you can't get results. What do you do? Eat cleaner. And I'm like, well, no, you, you can progress to like adding, like counting after you're eating clean. But like if simply saying, Hey, you know, stop eating this junk and eating a little bit more of this junk. And that's a really, really like low mental load, but you get a big improvement from it and you can get, you know, you know, weeks, months of results by just some of those choices why, why do I have to break out the, you know, the scale, you know, and like, you know, harass the, the server at the Applebee's or whatever to be like, Hey, you know, don't butter this and blah, 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 you know, and I want to, I want to make sure that, you know, I want to see that the cook has uh, not put any oil in this or whatever. And it's like, okay, could have just told them like, well, just order this and not this. And eight times out of 10, you're going to be closer to where, to where you need to be. So that's where that complexity factor comes in is like how, how complex does the dietary decisions and the tracking and et cetera need to be for you to get results right now. Right. Um, you know, so if you're, if you have a lot of, or we'll say if you're haven't been doing a lot of dieting and so like pretty much any change is going to yield a positive result, we want to use the, the easiest changes to implement as possible and, and then grow from there. 
So eventually, like if you're looking at getting on stage, well then yeah, you're gonna have to start counting stuff, right? But depending on your genetics um, and just like your appetite, your lifestyle, whatever, like some people can get lean without ever counting things and other people can't, right? Um, and so you, basically you wanna make sure that you give the person the approach that they need to. Um, and personality type t- pays a, a, you know, or plays a part in that as well, right? Some people, like they wanna know, like, um, and other people, they become neurotic. And then it's like, look, you're like, you are not allowed to measure or count anything for a couple weeks until you can realize that like, hey, you know, if you didn't measure something before you put it in your mouth, you're not going to die and just turn into a, you know, a, 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 a giant water buffalo. Like, you know what a piece of chicken looks like. Like, you know, the difference between, you know, what six to eight ounces of a chicken breast looks like versus, you know, you know, fried chicken you know with uh you know sweet rolls and potatoes right like that's it there's <laughs> it's not like if you didn't measure it it turns into something else it doesn't turn into a donut if you don't log the, the macros it's true and i think that's um one of the big things i say to clients is i think some people get very much they stress out too much about perfection rather than consistency and it's overall <laughs> consistency over a period of time adverse perfection for a week or two that's going to get results because i think people get so hung up about like measuring to the gram of rice they get themselves so stressed and wound up about it and his eyes is too much we're like it doesn't have to be too much you just need to learn to chill and as you said like use your brain a bit you can tell looking at something like it's close enough that's why going with the easiest option first is so beneficial because it's easier to get consistency when you're doing something relatively easy right um but it's harder to get consistency when whatever you're doing is very, it's, it's very demanding either from time or energy or focus or, or whatever it may be. Right. So, you know, going from nothing to tracking everything, that's asking a lot. And it's, it's mentally putting an exclamation point behind the accuracy because of how detailed you're asking somebody versus if somebody sees that like, Hey, you know, I'm not being extremely accurate at this, but I'm consistently making better decisions they're mentally saying that the consistency is the important thing. And do you see the same sort of thing when it comes to training, like to an aspect that where people sometimes get too hung up about, um, say for example, on their program, they had supersets down as an example to do the gym's too busy. They can't do supersets. Then like you hear and see some people like that. They just almost want to walk out of the gym at that point. And like, but realistically, if that sort of thing happens, just make a best case scenario that do it as two separate exercises. Like mm-hmm. the reality is if you getting stressed out about the situation is going to cause more damage than anything. It's the same when it comes to nutrition, when people um, have like a paddy about X, Y, Z, and it's a reality of them actually getting more stressed about the situation causes more damage than um, them doing something that's maybe not quite as on the plan, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think you have to teach people to your, in the real world, you're always making the best out of the current situation that you have, right? It's that whole, um, it's that whole analogy, or if you, you get a flat tire, you don't go out and like, you know, stab the other three tires because one tire was flat. Right. So, um, when it comes to the gym stuff, the, we like, like, I think as a community, we really enjoy the nuances like the you're like oh if you do it this way versus that way like um we like to focus on those things even though those are the things that only add the smallest little percentages of difference at the end um and you know that comes from me i'm a guy that like i i sell people how to do these things like very optimally and very you know we'll say quote unquote as close to perfect as we can get um so we cover a lot of these nuances but at the same time we'll say like yeah like it it doesn't double the results to do things, you know, 5% better or whatever. So if you're focused on only those little things and you lose the, the context that like, Hey, this is just making this a little bit better. Right. You know? So, I mean, so it's like, this is like the difference between baked and broiled chicken at this point. Like, so it's, it's not a huge, huge difference. Um, now what I will say though, is, is that when you start to master these things, stacking up those little percentages can make the big difference for somebody. Right. But it's, you, you have to look at it as like, man, oh, when, when you're at that point, you're probably doing 20 to 50 little things a day between your diet and your lifestyle and your training or whatever. So if one of those little things goes off, you still are in a big net positive, even on those little things. So consistency is always, 
uh, we'll always say is like, that's, that's the biggest thing, you know, and when it comes to the accuracy and the precision, people are, it's not a, you either hit the bullseye or nothing. It's like, it's okay to be slightly off target, right? If we're consistently hitting the target in, in general, right? Um, and obviously this conversation has to be goal specific. You know, if you're a couple of weeks out from a show, all right, you should, you should be mentally committed and lifestyle committed to being more accurate, you know, but if you're just, you know, if you're at 30% body fat trying to get down to 15, right? Like you don't have to worry about a lot of those things, like, or at least they don't have to be that important, right? They can almost be like, Hey, not a big deal. I'll average it out you know, over the course of the week, over the course of the month, over the course of six months, the net average will be such a positive that that little, little thing is going to be insignificant. And you mentioned there in terms of like um, small percentages accumulating together, coming towards that, like what would you say are the, the from say a hypertrophy point of view, what are the key exercises and sets or something like that you really think that might be something people haven't tried before that might add those extra percentages in if there's, different nuances in terms of like way of performing specific exercises or anything individually you think is like a low hanging fruit where people get the most bang from their butt from where they might not be doing at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, I think back training is probably one of the easiest places to go with that. Um, cause it tends, it tends to be one of the areas where people just, uh, will say it's almost like people have become mentally lazy with back training. Like we don't have a front day, but we have a back day but there's infinitely more musculature and angles and things to consider uh, on back training. So, uh, and just from a basic equipment availability, availability perspective, like the majority of our back equipment all has the same resistance profile. Um, and it tends to have the same, you know, type of restriction. So learning a few techniques of like, okay, how to actually get my lower lats engaged in a pull down by not doing what we call a wide, you know, a wide grip or a lat pull down, which is actually more of a, an upper back motion. It's kind of like a, you know, snow angel type motion when it's like the lats use the rib cage. So uh, doing something as simple as like getting an incline bench and putting it in front of the pull down so that it's more of kind of like a very high row. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is an angle that I'm never hitting with a dumbbell row, a barbell row, a seated row, like any of those things. And all of a sudden it's like, well, okay, maybe not as many people have lot high lats as the industry would like to claim. They just don't ever train uh, their lower lats. Right. And then, you know, learning if you have a couple of machines, whether it be like a hammer strength or uh, maybe you got a prime machine that makes it really easy to adjust the resistance profile. But if you have a machine that's got some sort of like plate loaded thing that you can manipulate, finding a way to make it challenging in the lengthened position of a back exercise is huge. And if you have none of those, um, like a simple solution for that, you know, a lot of times it's like, if you have somebody that's like, okay, what are you going to do is you're going to do your pull down on the cable, which is going to make, it's going to be hard to the bottom. Right. And so you can do is whatever, some, some reps, there, full range of motion, but then maybe you add like 30% to the load and do just partials of the top half. You basically put so much load on there that you can get only half a rep or less but it's a way of you challenging that portion of the range that like, well, I never get fatigued here. Like how many people actually do pull-ups or, or uh, pull downs to the point where they can't do the length of position anymore. Like that never, that, like that, that, that never happens. Right. Very good point. Would you even try something stuff like maybe if you had your training partner, so a lap pull down, like actively push on the weight, add resistance to the top half of the profile, top half of the movement as well. You could do that. What I would say would probably be better would be to have them assist the uh, short position because okay. um, it, it, it's, it's better, or I should say it's easier both on the, the training partner's perspective as well as from a, like just a consistency of loading perspective to have somebody taking a little bit of load off, but you're still kind of directing it versus if you have somebody adding resistance, they're adding kind of an inconsistent amount of resistance and that's harder for you to kind of coordinate than if somebody's like just easing you down a little bit because they can kind of like match speed if they were say like pushing down on the bar you know it's obviously if you're doing like dual cables or something then it becomes a more intimate experience maybe there's a little hand holding going on or, or something like that that's just that's just a commitment level on your point right like, how, how good what are you willing to do <laughs> yeah 
Anyway, so that, that's one for back. Is there any other gems like that you'd recommend? Like shoulders, for example, a big one I know a lot of guys struggle with. Shoulders, arms, things like that. Um, I mean, shoulders in general, it, I'd say the best thing that you can usually do to improve shoulders is actually just to learn kind of the functional anatomy and, and set up better for that. Because pretty much most of shoulder training is based on like planes in motion. Like, so people do an overhead press, but it's like, okay, but why do we do an overhead press? Just because we do a press in another direction, we are like straight up and down actually isn't the best thing for an anterior delt. It's actually more of what we call like the scapular plane. So the elbows aren't like parallel or, you know, like perfectly horizontal from your body. They're going to be slightly in front. It's going to give you more range of motion. So the big thing with delts is that most people, they're just, they're only training a limited range of motion. And then they, in a, on that limited range of motion, they're using an arm path that's only challenging tissue directly in a smaller portion of that. So it's the equivalent of like only doing quarter squats, right? Yeah. That's how most people are training their delts. So the biggest improvement that you could probably make is learning those passive motion, learning that the, the medial delt like is actually shortened in more of kind of like a Y position than the top of the lateral race. I mean, that's a massively different, you know, position and that's actually a fully shortened, you know, medial delt. And it's not lengthened with your arm hanging down by your side. It's actually your arm being pulled slightly across your body. Right. So it's like if you're only doing lateral raises um, and especially if you're doing them, you know, like maybe straight lateral with, you know, not proper setup of your total like medial delts range of motion, you might be hitting, you know, 10, 15% of that and really training that adequately. So you're just like hoping that, you know, doing a gazillion sets of like those really, really small reps, essentially that you get enough stimulus and maybe that works for, somebody that's just starting out or maybe somebody just happens to be structurally built where, you know, some of the traditional movements are less crappy for them. And so they can get by with a little bit more. Um, and then you get some people that, you know, like that are just so genetically blessed that if they create any systemic stress in their body, you know, or put any systemic substances in their body that like things, th things just grow, right. You like, you, you look at some of the best physiques and they have muscles that they don't train, right. They have like thumb muscles and forearm muscles that they've never directly trained. It's like, okay, so maybe when this isn't the person that I should look like, Oh, like how do they train this weak body part? And I'm like, well, I don't have a weak body part. It's like, ev like everything grows. Like um, you want to look to the people where it's, it's like, okay, this person had this weakness and they improved it or whatnot. And usually what you'll find out is those people found better ways to mechanically load that for their individual structure. Um, so shoulders, doing things like Y raises um, are going to be huge. Doing anterior delt presses instead of overhead presses uh, is going to be huge. Um, for rear delts, understanding that the rear delts don't do like a reverse fly motion. They do more of kind of a, like a, a rowing style motion, right? Where the arms are going to be kind of down like 45 degrees from the body and then kind of coming up and across a bit. Like that's the actual arc of the rear delt. So if you're just on like the pec deck doing reverse flies, it's the same situation as the medial delts. Like you're really only loading the medial delt a little bit for a small percentage of its range of motion. So you're going to run out of, you know, the ability to stimulate that muscle very fast if you're limited to those types of exercises. So that's an interesting point you, know, you mentioned in regards to rear delt in terms of um, almost like line of force. What would you recommend is the, the number one rear delt exercise? Because that's another one which I think a lot of people tend to probably bastardize a lot. I mean, for most people, it is, it, we just call it like a rear delt row, where it's a row where your elbows are slightly abducted and you're just trying to drive your elbows back as, as far as you can. Um, and what you'll actually notice is that people that have trouble growing lats, they tend to row like that. And so they have great rear delts. Um, and you, that, that's, that tends to be the funny thing is once we actually start teaching them to train their lats, then they actually have to start doing rear delt work because they were just doing rear delt work and all of their, their lat work. Um, so that's probably the, uh, the biggest one, um, I would say is just, just simply focusing on a rear delt row is very easy to learn. Uh, it's visually easy to, to, to line up. Like if, if you're a, a coach or whatnot, working with a client, like you can literally see the origin of that body like basically becomes perpendicular to the arm and just lets you know that, that fan shaped muscle is able to use all of those fibers at, at that position. So um, I think that's a, that's the lowest hanging fruit and biggest area of improvement for people for rear delts, the lengthened positions of the medial delts and the rear delts are more technically challenging to train. And so you want to make sure like 
you're good at using the muscle and the things that are easy before you try an exercise that's more challenging. Master the basics first, essentially. Mm -hmm. To start to wrap things up there, Tim, in terms of a supplement side of things, is there anything you recommend for clients when they come to you that the people might, might not have heard of or anything different or any like hidden gems out there you think like are a real big needle mover in people's sort of fat loss and muscle building sort of progression? We're, I mean, we're really trying to use, uh, well, I don't want to say we try and use as little as possible, uh, but we try and make sure that everything that we use is, is beneficial. So the majority of what we, what we put people is on is the basics. And to be honest, if your nutrition and your training are aligned, the basics are going to allow you to make a lot of progress, right? So we use, you know, like for most people coming in, it's like, all right, taurine, magnesium, electrolytes, multivitamin, you know, some sort of omega-3 fish oil or plant-based uh, omega-3, um, and, you know, maybe for some people, vitamin D. Um, like that tends to be like the majority of the basics. A lot of people, especially that are training a lot, um, especially if they're using, if they, you know, they use a lot of magnesium or minerals or whatever, usually a, uh, a B complex is, is pretty good, especially if they're not getting quite as much. Um, the thing you have to remember is you start incorporating more supplements in is that you can actually start depleting other things by putting in more things, right? So it's like, okay, like B vitamins and magnesium need to kind of like go up in tandem. So if it's like uh, one of the, you know, the old polyquin things is like give people a bunch of magnesium to help with their sleep and whatnot, which is magnesium is very important for energy. Like all of the ATP in your body needs magnesium to stabilize, which is why people say like, oh, it's responsible for all the energy creation, whatever. It's, well, yeah, it's because it's literally the thing that helps stabilize the energy molecule in the body. Um, so it's very important, but the more of that we have, then kind of the more B vitamins that we need to be able to facilitate the utilization of all of that. So as you start getting more complex and throwing a bunch of things in, the amount of knowledge that you need to have to be able to assess whether or not you're doing that appropriately goes up. So doing the basics, getting good quality foods that actually have some nutrients, you know, in them will, will be a much safer, more effective approach for a lot of people. On top of that, then we'll use, you know, from a bodybuilding or fitness perspective, you know, creatine is obviously like, you know, one of the, you know, easiest go-to things that you can, uh, that you can start to add to somebody, somebody's program. That's pretty much very, very safe. Um, you know, and you know, protein supplements, we tend to, we tend to use uh, like a, we'll say like a superfood or a grains product um, for most people. Simply, it's just like, it's just a way of covering our bases, getting some trace minerals and, and stuff like that in there, right? you know, because no matter what you do, it's, it's very hard, especially for, you know, somebody that's in a surplus to get enough vegetables and stuff, in, right? And then you have somebody to deficit and they eat a smaller amount of food. So then you're accounting for that. So no matter which way, direction you're going, having something in there that's pretty micronutrient dense is always a, is a tends, tends to always be a good idea. So that would be like the next basic that we would probably be adding like, all right, maybe a powdered greens type product and then, you know, a creatine type type product. And then from there it's focusing on whatever may improve recovery or performance in that particular training stimulus, or does somebody have a specific health condition? Right. And then there's no generalizations like people are like, Oh, what's your gut protocol? And I'm like, well, it depends on the person's gut. Right. And it's like, well, what's your sleep protocol? Well, it depends on, you know, the person's sleep, right. For one person, melatonin may work from one person, magnesium may work from one person, theanine and passion flower or whatever. Maybe you have to look at like, okay, what am I trying to, to do here? Right. Cause that's, that's the whole principle of the end of one thing with supplements is that you essentially want to get foundational things taken care of so that then whatever isn't like something that needs a direct, like a, a direct, like a nutrient for like all, all of the noise gets, gets filtered away. If we're doing good nutrition, good training, basic supplements, and we clear maybe say like, you know, three fourths of somebody's dysfunction or symptoms on your whatever questionnaire or whatever you happen to be using their blood work, et cetera. Then it's like, okay, what's left. That's what's now worth addressing specifically. But a lot of people, they take somebody, they just look at their, do their initial assessment, and be like, okay, everything is wrong with you. So we're just going to take a, a pill for all of those things and, you know, inter and intervention for all of those things. It's like, man, the body is this very complex things and everything is integrated. If you improve one thing, it'll often improve several other things, you know? So it's like, why not do your best to like just eliminate 
the easy things. And then what's left, those complex problems can have complex solutions, but don't use complex solutions for not complex problems. 100%. One, one quick last question. You mentioned in terms of uh, nutritional, highly nutritious food. Do you have like specific favorites in terms of like your preferred protein choices, carb choices, fat choices? Do you have a number one of each of those out of interest? Um, I mean, my, car, my, my, my recommendation for carbs people are always is that the, like, the carbs that are the best for you are the ones you digest the best uh, because carbs tend to come with a variety of fiber and complexity. And right, so depending on certain these guts, like I get this everything from both a supplementation and a food thing. People are like, oh, you know, should I have sweet potatoes or white potatoes or whatever? And it's like, all right, for most people, like preference and digestion, those are the two things that are that are going to guide this, right? Like if you like sweet potatoes and that works better for you, like, like great. Uh, if you like white potatoes or you prefer rice or you prefer quinoa or, or whatever, it's like, cool, right? Whatever doesn't make you bloated and fart, um, you know, and leaves your muscles full, like that's, that's, that's the right carb right now. Um, you know, and same thing for powders. Like, well, but this powder research says this. Like, yeah, but it doesn't matter if when you take it, you just like look like you're you know, two terms pregnant. Yeah, <laughs> do you think those carbs are in your muscle at that point? I mean, they're not, right? <laughs> you know, like if you take it and you like, you get bloated and you get like that cotton mouth, like, yeah, that's that's probably not a good carb. I would you. Um, and then when it comes to proteins, um, the thing that we try and focus on rather than just having just one is, is just to make sure that people get a, like a, a diverse range of protein. Again, digestion being the thing, um, you know, but I think, you know, for people uh, having, you know, some red meat, some white meat, if you like fish, great. Uh, but just being able to have a variety is better or having a rotation. Depend like for some people, it's like, hey, the easiest thing for me is just to eat like the same thing, but it's like, okay, but then in a couple of weeks, we're going to switch your protein sources up or, or whatever it may be for that. Um, and so depending on what they choose, then we got whatever fats are left. And most people, like the fats that they need are going to need to be good things from like extra virgin olive oil, omega-3s, things like that. So if they're not eating much fish, you know, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big thing. And if you're... Since we tend to, you know, we tend to be pro red meat um, and, you know, people tend to put maybe like some butter on their veggies or something like that. Um, you know, most people don't need to supplement with extra saturated fats. It's usually they need some, some you know, some monosaturated fats, uh, you know, for their, in terms of any, any supplemental fats in their diet. I'm interested, would you be happy for clients to use like organic grass-fed butter as a fat source? Yeah. I mean, I mean again, it kind of depends on, you know, on, on what they need, right? Like if they're going to choose butter and you could like, uh, I think it was at Alan Argonon did a thing um, on like, well, how much omega-3 is there in grass-fed meat and butter and how much CLA? And like, when you look at it, it's like, okay, if you look at a single serving, it's like, okay, this is nothing compared to a supplemental dosage. It's not like you eat one, you know, tablespoon of grass-fed butter and then you have all your CLA and omega-3 and you're just like, you're superhuman. Um, the, but again, this comes back to that consistency and it's also a combination of, okay, I get a little bit more what's good, but I also get a little less what's bad. And you do that for a year. That's going to be a difference, right? It may not be a difference in a week. It may not be a difference in four weeks. Um, and I think when it comes to the whole like nutrient quality stuff is when you look at research where it's like, okay, these people were forced to eat this way that's very different than when a real person has choices and a real person will feel different, like higher, lower quality foods, same relative, you know, calories, they may have more or less energy. They may feel a little bit more, you know, uh, lethargic or their appetite may be different depending on food quality. Right. And that's where the things that like start to stack up all those little nuances, like, okay, nutrient timing that can really affect somebody's appetite and just how they feel throughout the day how they eat things, even if it's, even if it's calorie balanced. So in real world, that'll make a difference in diet adherence. How many meals? Well, some people may feel better, like more full on three meals a day versus four, or maybe some person feels really good on two big meals a day, you know, and just a shake after their workout or whatever it may be. It's like, okay, the thing that's actually going to help them be consistent, perform the best, feel the best, like that's, that's those little nuances start to add up because they affect the consistency side of the equation, right? Which improves accuracy, you know, over time. 
I think it's an awesome point there to finish up on. So I really, really appreciate your time today, Seem. In terms of the people to find out some more information about you um, and anyone training, anyone education, where's the best place to reach out and find some more information about you? So you can find us uh, on Instagram uh, at n1.education or at n1.training. Education is our education brand, right? So we have courses and, you know, basically all of the, the deep nuances that you'd want to know on biomechanics, program design, et cetera. Our membership site at, uh, at n1.training. We have an exercise library where we like we give the resistance profiles and all all that stuff. So depending on what you're looking for, those are our two resources. If you want to follow me, um, I rant a lot. Um, I have a I have a sense of humor. If you don't appreciate it, just go away. Uh, but it's <laughs> Coach underscore Casim. Uh, and yeah, so basically, I try and keep my uh, try and keep my business accounts, you know, you know, PC and uh, you know, rant free. So I kind of have my own little space where it's like. I'll get into some things. I'll get into some, we'll say some disputes, arguments or whatnot. I'm not afraid to uh, share my opinion, but I'm also not afraid to change it. Um, and that's an important thing in this industry. So, you know, if you want to follow somebody that uh, we'll say is, is a good balance of like being open to change, but also being willing to call other people on their bullshit, then you can follow me personally. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. So make sure you give him a follow. If you found this episode helpful, please make sure you subscribe to the podcast, leave us a five-star review, and then tag us to your stories. So thank you so much for your time today, dude. Really, really appreciate it. It was a pleasure to chat. Awesome, man. Thank Good you. Talk.